It is good to be together again. And what we want is to go on growing even though we have to stay apart. And one way that God keeps us growing is when we hear his voice speaking to us through Scripture, inviting us and equipping us for our part in his good work. Thessalonians is going to be our focus each time we gather here. We're going to listen to what God has to say. Uh, Last week, we got a handle on the context for this letter, uh, written by Paul to a group that he had known and then loved but now was missing, a letter written to help them grow. Today, we're going to read through the first chapter, and then we're going to narrow our focus on three virtues which are present whenever Christians are growing. And we're going to take our time there because we want to grow. And I'm going to give you an interpretive principle that will be helpful whenever you read the Bible. Uh, But before you find your way to Thessalonians, and I see you're already there, I'm going to ask you to try and listen in the same way that the first recipients would have heard it. And of course, they didn't have a New Testament when this letter arrived. So try to use your imagination here. Ever since Paul and Silvanus left us, we've been wondering what happened to them. Uh, Where did they go? Did they even survive? Uh, After some time passed, Timothy showed up in the city where we live and told us that Paul and Silas had made their way all the way down to Athens And good news, they've been missing us just like we'd been missing them. Uh, Timothy spends some time there and then departs back to Athens. And then some more time passes, and we're about our work in the city when we hear news that Timothy has arrived back in Thessalonica, this time with a letter from Paul. Uh, Thessalonica is a city that is sprawling right by one of the biggest ports in the Mediterranean. This is actually what it looks like. Imagine you are at work, you're in the shop where you labor, or at the docks where you do your job, and then word comes that a letter has arrived, this time from Paul, and you leave your shop behind and you make your way, along with everybody else who's a part of our community, up the hill outside of the city to the house where Jason lives, the house where we used to be together in worship. This photo is actually taken from the front steps of Jason's house. Uh, We arrive, go inside to this place, and then we're ready to listen to the letter that was written to us. Now imagine you're, you're hearing it. This is the first chapter. Don't don't read along. Listen. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the lord 
for in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. That's the first chapter of the letter. It sounds like there's an awful lot in there, doesn't it? In our ears, it will seem like there are many themes that have been unfolded in this opening letter, which we've received from Paul. But listen now. To those folks who heard it the first time, it would have been immediately clear that there's only one theme in this opening chapter. Thanksgiving for every good thing which God has done. Now look at the first chapter. We're going to spend some time together looking at the words there. Verses 2 through 10. In my Bible, that's 30 lines of text. In the original Greek, this is one single sentence. Whenever there is a complicated statement with paraphrastic asides and complicated syntax and dependent clauses and participial phrases, in Greek, the whole thing will be built around one principal verb. That holds it all together. And in this case, look at verse 2. That verb is the first verb there. It is eucharistomen, we give thanks. The folks in Jason's house would have heard everything that came after that opening clause as an unfolding of that singular theme, Paul's gratitude for everything which God had done. That's what is in this first chapter because God is behind every good thing. Paul thanks God and not them. And God has been doing very good things through these folks, inviting and equipping them for his mission. Find your way down to verse 8. This is how Paul describes the good that God had done through them. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. Now, through these folks in Thessalonica, the word of the Lord has sounded forth like the blast of a trumpet or the rumbling of thunder over the landscape, the word of the Lord has gone through Macedonia and Achaia. That's a region which stretches north of Thessalonica all the way down south of Athens. All over this region, according to Paul, people are hearing about Jesus because of the people in this church. This is an exceptionally joyful thing for Paul to report because it's a success for this man whose mission is to speak about God, he's telling them, through you, God is speaking for himself, so I don't even need to say anything. Not your word, not 
your ideas, but the word of the Lord has gone forth from these people. The word of the Lord is what God says through Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate. Think with me about what the word of the Lord says. It says God has not forgotten this world in its misery. But every single care and concern that you have is right there in the center of God's heart. And so in Christ, he's come close to cry every tear you cry, to hurt every hurt that you have in your heart, and to come so that he could heal you. He's not left you alone. You've been looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and for purpose. Good news, God has never stopped looking for you. And in Christ, he's come right down to where you are so that he himself could love you with the perfect love and rescue you from every problem you've ever found to meet every need that you have and the ones you don't know that you have and to Deliver you perfectly. That is what the word of the Lord says. And the thing that makes Paul so thankful about the folks in Thessalonica is that God is saying that everywhere through them, partly through their words, but also through the way that they are living. They've received the gospel not only in word, but also in power through the Holy Spirit, in joy, despite persecution, in hospitality, building bridges instead of walls, in leaving behind their old idols to worship and serve Jesus only, in imitating the Lord just as Paul had done so that when people look at them, they see Jesus. This is why Paul is thankful. That is what God had done through those people. Listen now. That is what God wants to do through us. That is why Renaissance Church exists. That is why he's gathering us together and building us up so that through us, God can show others who Jesus is. Now, how does that work? I want you to find your way up to verse 3. This is going to show us how God was able to do this through those people. It was what God was doing in them that enabled God to use them for his mission. In verse 3, Paul thanks God for this. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In that verse, there are three word pairs. Did you see them? There are the three virtues, faith, love, and hope. And then paired with each one of those is a modifier. Work, labor, and steadfastness, or it might say endurance in your version. Uh, I want you to make a note of those three words in your Bible. First, the modifiers. If you want to underline them, uh, do that. These words come from the workshop, the field, and the arena. They are not religious words. Paul has not gone to the church lexicon to find Uh, super spiritual words. Instead, he's drawn them from the everyday world where people in Thessalonica would be working just in the same places where you would work. The first modifier there, work, which is ergon in Greek, that is the word that describes the consistent application of skillful energy to a trade. So imagine the workshop of the cobbler or the blacksmith or the weaver. The second modifier, labor, kopos in Greek. That's the word for the toil of the field hand out 
among the crops. In the dry heat, doing the same task over and over, tilling the soil, pruning the branches, picking the fruit. Steadfastness or endurance, it's hypomene in Greek. That's the word for the athlete's persistence. Pushing herself toward the goal, tired but still at it, exhausted but back in the gym, drawn forward by what's up ahead there at the finish line. Work, labor, and steadfastness, all three of these make an incredibly important point clear for us, and it's this, that the words they modify cannot be passive feelings. They're not emotions which you either have or don't have. They're not thoughts, but faith, love, and hope are acts of the will. They're things that you do like you do in the workshop or in the field or in the arena. And we need to understand this for a very simple reason. The way God will grow us is when we hear his voice through Scripture. And paying attention is critical in order for us to receive what God wants to say to us here. And these modifiers help us do that because many of us will have always thought of faith as if it means believing in certain ideas or propositions in your mind. You either have faith or you don't. But if it's the work of faith, then it has to be something different than that. Do you see it? Same with love. We probably will have always thought of love as that warm, positive emotion which you have towards certain people and certain things or not. But if it's the labor of love, it can't be that. It has to be something different. Same with hope. We maybe will think of hope as an optimistic view, being a glass half full kind of person, being positive, always trying to look for the silver lining. But if it's steadfastness of hope, then it means it's more of a decision and an action on our part than that. Now these modifiers tell us that we have to work at understanding what these terms are so God can help us grow. So what are they? If they're not just feelings or emotions, positively speaking, what is faith which works? And what is the labor of love? And what is steadfastness of hope? Now here I'm going to offer you an interpretive principle. A way of understanding terms in Scripture that will help us here and every time we read the Bible. And here it is. For us, Jesus defines the terms. Whenever we want to understand an important word or concept in the Bible, the best place for us to look is at Jesus. Because it's through his example that we get the most reliable picture of the terms that are instrumental in God's process of helping us grow. Jesus defines our terms with what he says, but also with what he does. Now, this specific approach to interpretation is a hermeneutic. That's the word for it. It's not the only one. Okay, there are other ways to define terms. You might decide that the best way to understand what faith means is to go back to the first century literature and see how people used the word back then. And that's a good strategy. It will be helpful. It's not adequate. Another approach might be to say, all right, let's go through the whole Bible 
and see how that word is used every time it's used in the Bible. We'll shake that all up and that will define the term for us. Again, that's helpful, but it's not adequate. In fact, in some cases and with some terms, people who read the Bible carefully will note that that approach can actually be confusing and sometimes misleading. Uh, let me be specific. Let's say we want to find a definition for success. And we go to the book of Proverbs. There we hear from Solomon that success is a long, healthy life with lots of children and lots of servants and lots of wealth. That's success. But then if we go and find our way to the Gospels, we listen to Jesus and we hear a different definition. Success is giving yourself away. Success is laying your life down for your enemies. Success is becoming a servant, the lowest person, taking last place. Do you see the difference? In moments like that, when there is a divergence, and there, there is a divergence in this place and there, in moments like that, we're going to gain the best clarity by looking at Jesus. That's going to be our approach. And it is one, in fact, that is found in Scripture itself. Now listen. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son, who is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. That's how the book of Hebrews opens. That's a way of saying, if you want to know who God is, and if you want to hear what God is saying, the best place to look is always the same place, Jesus. Do you want to know what the work of faith is? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what the labor of love actually looks like? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what endurance and steadfastness and hope looks like? Then look to Jesus. Thank God... We have everything we need here to see what Jesus looks like so we can understand how God wants to grow us by building into us faith, love, and hope so that through us, God can make the word of the Lord sound everywhere he's placed us. Let's try this interpretive approach together by looking at Jesus. Okay, we'll start with faith. You good? Okay, find your way to Mark chapter 14. The last supper has just finished. The last meal that Jesus is going to eat with his friends. He leads them out of the room and then out of the city of Jerusalem through the eastern gate. They go down the steep hill into the uh, Kidron Valley and then they begin to climb up the Mount of Olives. Up they go into the dark with the lights diminishing behind them in the distance and they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus tells the disciples to sit down. He is going to go in to pray because he is terrified of what's ahead of him. There's a fork in the road and he knows that down one path, well, that leads to the cross. He tells Peter, James, and John, you're coming with me and they go in further. Sit here and wait, he tells them. Keep awake. And then all by himself, Jesus goes in even further to pour his heart out before his heavenly father. He prays that he won't have to go to the cross. Look at verse 36. 
He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Abba is the tenderest way a son can address a father. Daddy, Jesus says, please don't make me have to go to the cross. I cannot accept the judgment that will be poured out there. I don't believe I can do it. Please, please make there be another way. That is a genuine expression of what is happening inside of Jesus' heart. But then he adds, yet, not what I want, but what you want. And this is what the work of faith looks like. Faith, as the work that God calls us to, is the decision to trust God, no matter what. When we want to go that way, but God says, you're going to go that way. And when we can't see two steps further, just one, and everything in us wants to go that way and can't believe we could possibly go that way, faith is trusting God enough to say, yet not what I want, but what you want. Faith is this determination which we see so vividly in Jesus to go on believing that the Father loves me. I am his beloved. And then to trust that he knows better than I do. And then to unfold before him what you dearly and desperately want. But then at the end of it all to say whatever you want is the way that I will go. That's what we learn about faith when we look at Jesus applying our principle. Do you see it? Faith is when you take the next step that you know God wants you to take, even though you want to go that way and you can't see what the one after that looks like. Faith is trusting God to provide exactly what you need, even though walking blamelessly will mean a much longer walk and a much lower return for you. Faith is refusing to cut the corners or to help yourself by being dishonest since you know that God wants you to be a person of integrity, even if it means things become much more challenging for you. Faith is turning the other cheek. Faith is refusing to be overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. All of this is what faith looks like because faith is trusting God. And this is the way God has called us to walk. And what God wants us to do is to grow in the work of faith so through us he can proclaim the word of the Lord everywhere we walk. Do you see it? Let's try this same thing with our second virtue, love. Uh, turn over to John chapter 13. We're back at the table, the meal. Jesus is with his friends around that table and everything is set up just right for them. And he has it in his mind that one of them around that table, Judas, is going to betray him. And he has it in his mind that Peter is going to pretend he doesn't even know Jesus at the trial which will come after the betrayal. And he knows that every single one of them will soon abandon him as he hangs on the cross. And, and, and all of that is happening as they sit around the table. But look at verse 1 in chapter 13 of John. The second half of that verse, John tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means this is what love looks like. You're going to see what it looks like to pursue the labor of love. 
over in the corner of the room, there's the stone jar filled with the water for purification, and right beside it is the basin, and then rolled up beside that is the towel. But there's no servant to put the towel on. Everyone around the table is thinking the same thing. Someone's got to wash our feet before we have our meal. But it's not going to be me because I know that I'm not the lowest person at the table. Jesus knows that he is the highest person at the table. And with that thought in his mind, watch what he does. This is verse 4. Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Can you imagine being one of those disciples as the master, your master, was taking your feet in his hands and washing them? This is what the labor of love looks like. Love is not a feeling. Love is serving. Love is using the power that you have for the well-being of the people around you without expecting any reward and without any hesitation because you know what it's going to cost you. Even when the other is unlovable, love is doing what you can to help them. When Jesus sits back down at the table after washing their feet, he tells them directly, I did this as your master to give you an example for what you also should do. If the master acts like a servant to you, you also should serve one another. That's the labor of love. That's what we learn when we apply our interpretive principle, letting Jesus define our term for us. Love for you. Listen now. Love for you is patiently and consistently caring for the kids. It's feeding, cleaning up, laundry, diapers, teaching, disciplining, setting and keeping boundaries, giving everything you've got, and then waking up tomorrow morning and doing it all again. That's what Jesus teaches us about what love is. Love is using the words that you have carefully and constructively and kindly, even when you have every right to use them otherwise. It, it's speaking words that build up and encouraging, healing and mending, repairing, equipping and challenging in the right direction. Love is entering into every single relationship that you have with friends and family, with coworkers and church connections, and asking God, help me see how I can use the power that you have given me to help these others. In whatever way promotes their well-being emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Love is serving. One more. I'll turn a few more pages. And find your way to John chapter 20. Let's see what hope looks like. The supper is behind us, and so is the cross. Because now, it's Sunday evening, and most of the disciples are gathered together in a room where they used to meet, and all of them have in their memory, watching their master Jesus die on the cross. That morning, some of them had gone to the graveyard where his body had been laid. Some women told them, he's not here because he's arisen. They had actually heard Jesus make those promises, but even still, it's hard for them to believe. And so in that room, they have the door locked because they're afraid. When they look down the road, they're terrified. 
because of what's behind them. Do you know what that's like? They're hopeless. But locked doors cannot keep Jesus out. It's in this very moment that Jesus appears to them altogether. When they have zero confidence, no strength at all, and they've absolutely abandoned their faith, none of the traits that would make you think that they could have any part in God's work going ahead. And what Jesus says when he shows up to them in that room shows us what steadfastness of hope looks like. Look at verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The Father sent Jesus to carry out his mission in the world. Jesus is telling this hopeless group that he is now sending them to carry out God's mission in the world in the same way that he had. He trusts them in the present. How on earth could he do this? The answer is he has steadfastness of hope, even with this hopeless group. Follow me here. Jesus is not giving up on them and is steadfast in his confidence instead because of what he knows for certain about the future. And, and what's certain about the future is that God's victory will come from those who are willing to go on trusting in him. Whenever a person says, even though I've got nothing to show for it, I trust him and I'm going to work at serving others in his name. In that moment, hope appears. Hope is enduring. Choosing to keep on going in the present because of the confidence that you have about God's future, when that enables you to persevere now, then you are doing the work of steadfast hope. God is going to win completely. He will be victorious. Hope means trusting that and then enabling that to allow you to go on enduring. Hope is trusting that God works all things together for good. Have you heard that? For those who are called according to his purposes and who love him, so that instead of giving up, we are ready for another day of work in this pandemic, in this season of division, in this uncertainty. If it's one more day or one more week or one more month or even more of having to be apart, we hope because we know in the end God wins. Hope is confidence in God's promise of that new creation down the road where every tear will be wiped away and all the pain and struggle will be gone forever. And because of that confidence, being able to carry the weight of this present suffering for one more day so that we can be steadfast through a few more tears. Hope is enduring all things. Trusting that this weight which we carry, listen to me now, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that so far outweighs every trouble we've ever faced, it's not even worth comparing them. Believing and keeping at it. That's what we learn from Jesus about the work of faith, about the labor of love, and about the steadfastness of hope. Uh, come in your mind with me back to Thessalonica. You have to take this to heart. No one, no one at all, is called to this alone. Because no one ever could do it alone. At all. Ever. 
And of course, I mean that Jesus is with us, but I mean something more than that as well, which is that we need each other. In Jason's house, those people who'd been frightened for a long while, imagine the joy that they received when they knew that Paul was still working to help them grow and that God had been working through them and would continue to work in them as he built faith, love, and hope in them as they opened themselves up to God's presence. I want to I end with this promise. God will do good work through us as our hearts are open to the work he'll do in us so that we can go on working in faith and laboring in love and steadfast in hope. Thank God for this group here. Thank God for the chance to spend time together in his word like this. And thank God that when we pray, he listens. Let's open our hearts to him now in prayer. God, for the good gift of your word, we give you thanks. For what it's like when we gather together and open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us through the scriptures, we give you great thanks. For Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica and for the way that you speak to us through it, we praise you. We thank you for how Jesus shows us what faith and what love and what hope look like. I ask very simply that for having seen these with one another, we ourselves would be built up by your spirit for the work of mission that you have for us right now and in the days ahead. God, invite us again to your mission. Equip us again for your work. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.